In this episode, I'm talking to Lee Hartley, founder and CEO of Fairstone. Fairstone is a privately owned, full-service wealth management firm. Fairstone has an annualized run rate revenue of 120 million for 2022, has 15 billion of client investment funds and employs over 1,100 people. Lee and the team at Fairstone's aim is to bring intelligent wealth management solutions to their clients across a lifetime financial journey. Lee founded Fairstone in 2008, growing the business from startup to a market leader. Lee has been integral to Fairstone's growth, leading the business through a series of investment rounds and overseeing the development of the business strategy and national acquisition program. Hi Lee, welcome to the Zeus Founder and Chief podcast. Very grateful for you joining us here. Morning Paul, thank you very much for inviting me. No problem at all. You didn't start out in financial services. I'm quite interested to your journey into starting out financial services and wealth management businesses. Yeah, um, so I always say, you know, I've never sat any financial planning qualifications. I've never given advice. So that makes me perfectly suited to uh, running a national wealth management business. But is that your disclaimer early on? Lee? It is, it is. Um, but, you know, that catchphrase 15 years on is getting a little bit worn. I think I need to own the financial services space a little bit more than I have done in the past. But, yeah, I mean, my background is ostensibly in kind of tech and e-commerce. So at university, I studied mechanical engineering, but then decided to take all of my electives in the business school. Um, for no other reason than that looked a little bit more interesting. My dad always ran small businesses, nothing particularly successful, but um, it probably instilled in me that doing something on your own is nothing to be scared of. Um, what sort so, of businesses did your dad have? Uh, he managed rock bands, he had a mobile bakery, he had a motorbike shop. Um, so uh, pretty fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, never made a single penny, but it was more the, it was more the case that you know, the concept of trying to do something uh, is nothing that you should shy away from, you know. So nice. um, so I left university with the weirdest qualifications you've ever seen. So mechanical engineering and half the, half the units on the business school and decided at the start of 1998 to set up an e-commerce development business and purely by luck more than anything else fell into delivering a range of solutions for small banks, building societies. That then was a springboard into working with some life insurance companies, some fund management houses. So quite a broad spectrum mm-hmm. of work doing quite a range uh, of projects for these corporate clients. How um, old are you at this point? I was 22, 23. Oh, okay. um, and through that work, you know, a lot of the stuff that we delivered, a lot of the, the tech solutions that we had to roll out had to interface with an IFA firm or a wealth management firm. And that was an unbelievable learning experience because what I saw were, were a couple of things. Financial advisors and wealth managers sitting in front of clients, giving advice are absolutely excellent. They're great at that client care, uh, the whole advice, the whole service, long-term planning stuff, you, you know, that's what they do best. But the businesses in which they worked were so clunky, so archaic, they had no business model. I thought, how do these firms make money? And that got me really interested. And, and the more work we did as a supplier into the FS sector, the more interested I got. So I decided to sell that business um, in 2000, 
2000, late 2006 um, to the wrong people at the wrong time, but that's a learning experience in itself. And spent all of 2007 thinking about, okay, can we create a new model wealth advisory business? So one that has probably two aspects to it, an operating platform that can create organic growth, you know, so really good at customer acquisition, good at tech, good at centralization, remove all of the risk and reg uh, overhead from, from advisory firms, um, centralized diligence and fund research, all that kind of stuff. So can we enable financial advisors to do more of what they do best? And then secondly, can we create a buyout model which actually which actually works? You know, there's lots of research around the place that says that shows, sorry, that MA, classical MA really doesn't add value. And if you want to create a business of scale, MA, you know, is typically one of the things that you will look at. But just doing it the same way that everybody else has done it didn't seem particularly interesting. So they were the two Sorry, aspects. Just, just to cut across you there, so I'm going to jump around my, my questions a little bit here. Um, for the benefit of those listening, you, you've done an extraordinary amount of M&A. And I know that you you term your 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 your, your M&A strategy and the way that you run that process as that downstream downstream buyout model. Do you want to just explain then for those people who are listening? Um, not every part of the secret sauce, but what is that model? How many how many deals have you done to to, to date? And obviously that'll jump around a little bit, but we'll pull that together. So go on, your your M and A strategy yeah. and volumes that you've done. Uh, our downstream buyout model, which we launched in two thousand and ten, uh, so two years after we actually created the business. Um, firstly, it's probably the smartest thing that we've ever done, um, and it really has been the bedrock of our growth. And in very very simple terms, it's a reversal of the traditional buy and build process. You know, typically you'll see firms who um, want to be acquisitive. They'll go out there, they'll they'll find some firms that they want to speak to that broadly fit the profile. They'll do some due diligence, they'll agree a deal and think that the job is done. And my thinking was always, well, actually it's the integration that's the hard part. Mm-hmm. Where all the secret sources is, is is not in buying businesses. Buying businesses is really easy. Don't let anybody tell you different. <laughs> integrating businesses is really hard. And particularly making one cohesive business out of a range of entities that acts as one business and has real organic growth, that is really, really difficult. But that's, you know, that's the ultimate aim. So the, the downstream buyout, um, proposition really reverses everything. So it is ultimately integrate, grow, acquire. We integrate a partner firm over two, three, four years. We provide them with the tools that they need to reach their aspirational performance levels, whether that is uh, access to new uh, customers, greater capacity, you know, more time to actually spend with clients, uh, whether it's the capital to grow, invest in the business, recruit, um, and we give them a great client proposition to work within as well. So we help them to grow over that integration period. That integration period is is dictated by that partner firm. And really it, it means, okay, how long do you want to grow your business? And then we acquire after two, three or four years, but based upon the level of financial performance at that time. So we incentivize growth. We get the hard work done first. 
and it just works. And I think one of the other aspects is when we buy the business, the deal doesn't end. It's a sell and stay proposition. Yeah. We don't want the human capital walking out the door as soon as we've culminated uh, the deal, but also we share the upside. So if that business continues to perform through the earnout, we share all of the upside. Yeah, and one part to, sort of to, to, yeah. to pause on and stress there, isn't it? It's that that realization doesn't come day one. Partial will, obviously, but it's the growth and it's that integration. And then X amount of years down the line is when everybody can then benefit from that initial transaction. Yeah. And the emphasis within our business is firmly on that integration piece. And, you know, we can evidence that there are 12 people in our MA team, there are 55 people in our integration team. Um, and I think that says a lot. How many have you done uh, acquisitions to date then? We've done 64 uh, downstream buyout deals. Of those, we've acquired 56. So there are eight that we will acquire the remaining part of this year uh, through next year, maybe the early part of the year after. And we typically onboard around about 10 to 12 new partner firms per year. And will you continue along that, that strategy going forwards? Will that always remain a core part of the strategy? Yeah, it, it's it's nothing could tear us away from that strategy. We've proven time and time again that it works. And, you, you know, we, we published some of our stats. It, elsewhere in our sector, you know, you see other m and um, other M&A programs where they, uh, you, you know, those businesses proudly kind of state that the firms that they've acquired have received 70, 75% of their target sale value, which is, I just think that's crazy, you know, <laughs> actually publishing that, but it, that is the fact. Yeah. And because most deals in our sector are done with an earnout component, when the integration actually happens during the earnout, that's the it's the worst part of it going through business disruption. And I think ultimately that combined with a lot of acquirers operating vertically integrated models, you know, forcing, you know, increased fees and forcing reduced choice upon clients, which then ultimately, you know, results in people leaving and clients leaving. That whole model doesn't work. I mean, that whole consolidator model, um, I, I really, I just think, I think it's looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Mm. Um, and we're trying to be the exact opposite of that. You know, we can't, we don't seem to be able to avoid the trade press calling us a consolidator, but we believe we're the exact opposite of that. Um, but yeah, um, when we publish our statistics, um, I'd like to think that backs up everything that we say, you know, 100% of all of the firms that we've acquired have received 100% of their target sale value, which again, you know, a lot of people would think, well, isn't that commonplace? No, it's it's completely unique. But on average, um, the firms that we have acquired have received 116% of what they expected. And that's a result of continuing to share the upside that comes from increased performance, and that whole sell and stay proposition. You know, we want the selling shareholders and the principals to stay with the business, and we need to incentivise that, and we need to share, you know, share the glory with them. I'll, I'll change my introduction from uh, consolidating business first. <laughs> Please don't. Honestly, honestly, we, we hate the term. We really don't like it. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry. Right, I chopped you as you um, as you were talking around the journey. In my introduction, I do describe. Fairstone's offering intelligent wealth management 
just explain that that sentence for me um, and then again for the benefit of those people who are listening that aren't necessarily um, plugged into the sector just summarize what first don't do okay so we really believe that it can be high end and low cost so our offering is chartered whole of market and independent yet when you compare ourselves against the incumbent market leader we deliver that service at 60 percent lower cost right. so you know that's a bit of a that's a bit of a standout but then i suppose if you if you go a couple of layers deeper you know we really believe in long-term financial planning lifetime cash flow planning plus estate planning not just you know advising clients around certain products but really giving them a, a track to run on to achieve their life you know their lifetime goals added into that we have no minimum wealth levels you know if a client comes to us with five thousand pounds we will work with them and we'll we'll grow with that client there are no exit fees. It's just a much more modern and a much more open architecture offering. Since I've known you, Lee, you've, um, you are one of the most successful businesses that I've come across. You've completed two rounds of private equity, um, which you know most people will maybe do one turn and then look at a trade exit or maybe um, public markets. So you're now on your second round of private equity. Um, so far and there may be more in, in 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 the future potentially help me understand what has what has been your experience of working with private equity what did has anything changed in terms of what you perceive private equity to be or behave like what was it like bringing a private equity sophisticated investor around the board table you know for people who were listening we have many ceos listening to this podcast who may be contemplating private equity just give us your experiences from that particular um, process and, and how it's worked for you yeah um i think the key differences are from what i expected are probably i thought that working with private equity you know having them in the business as a shareholder and around the board table would be more onerous than it actually is okay um I think if you are a business that has got really good MI, you know, because private equity feeds on data, uh, you've just, that is what it is. Um, you've just got to get comfortable with that. But if you've got good, good MI, uh, a good business intelligence platform, then actually the engagement with private equity is really quite simple. And for a business like ours, which is high growth, fast paced, quite entrepreneurial, Private equity is a is a much better um, it, it's a much much better funding structure and a much better business partner than being on the public markets. Um, so that's the first thing. And I think we've gone through two rounds, and those two rounds were very different, and they were for very different purposes. So in 2016, when Sonova came in, the purpose of that round was to give more firepower to our acquisition program, so it was development capital, and and to cash out some of our very early stage investors because from the start we bootstrapped it ourselves we invested all of our own money then we brought in some kind of high net worth syndicated money uh, around about 2010 so uh, and across into 2012 so by 2016 it was the time to give a liquidity event to those to those shareholders uh, and they got you know they received a very good return on their money and then in 2021 the the deal with ta uh, was really to to start to scale the business and say, okay, we built a business of substance, but now can we build a business of true scale? And very different styles. Um, 
the 2016 round, we were active in the market. We did a very small uh, off-market process. We, I think we, we spoke to about six PE houses. We ended up with three, three offers. And we picked Sonova because they just understood the business to a far, far greater degree. And the, the level of work that they put, on, put in to the process, you know, meetings in Newcastle before any meetings in, in London, spending time with us and really getting underneath the model, the, you know, the whole ecosystem in which we operate, competitive advantage against our peer group. It gave us a lot of confidence that they're going to be a really good business partner, which they have. But in, in 2021, when we um, completed the deal with TA, they actually approached us. Uh, so we weren't looking at the transaction. So I think it was September 2020 when they made an approach. Um, and it was probably 12, maybe 18 months before we, we planned to go into another transaction. But everything worked. You know, we like the approach. They understand financial services. They've got investments in the US. They've got investments in the Nordics. They're big believers in the wealth management space. Um, so, yeah, we felt very, very comfortable and it avoided a whole prolonged process and all the things and all the distraction that comes with that uh, further down the line. So very different processes, different reasons for raising capital. And interestingly, we still, you know, clearly TA and now our lead investor, lead shareholder in the business, but Sonova also chose to reinvest. So nice took a return on their money uh, and reinvested. And, you know, across the 2016 and across the 2021 private equity rounds, we delivered a return to our investors of anywhere between four and a half times and 11 times their money. So, you know, I do feel very proud of that. Yeah, no, you should, you should. Um, and you've, well, you have done a remarkable job and, and, and you continue to. Just to touch on that then. So your first round, you run a small process, as you say. Um, you were the, and, and, and you'll always get inbound. You're getting bound from advisors and you're getting bound from trade and private equity, et cetera. But you almost had the, the doors open a little bit um, to, you know, to, to see what that looks like. When you get somebody coming in, and like I said, I appreciate you, you will always get inbound, but when TA then come in around 2021 and you realise this is a serious conversation, how how difficult is it for you as a CEO to get your head around, okay, this isn't necessarily a welcomed approach in terms of you weren't looking for it, to then how quickly do you get to a position where you go, right, okay, we're, we're comfortable here. How, how difficult was it for you to manage that? Whereas one was a process that you almost had control of and you knew where it was going to end up and another one comes out of the blue. Yeah. It's kind of the difference between speed dating and <laughs> and a marriage. Um, Carefully. You, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we skipped the whole first date engagement, getting to know you, living together piece. But I don't know. Sometimes you've just got to grasp the opportunity. Um, okay. They came to the table in a very informed way. Uh, I, I, I had a, you know, you know, you know the score, Paul. Um, I've got different private equity houses pick up the phone every two or three months want to do a little bit of fact finding. And part of the art of what we do is, you know, just repackaging public information um, and letting people know, you know, what we're doing, what the outline plan is, everything that, you know, all information that's out there anyway, in press announcements and annual reports and corporate collateral, but just forming a relationship and, you know, giving, giving people who could be in the mix at the next transaction uh, some, some information packaged up in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be able to assimilate uh, by doing it themselves. Yeah. 
So I actually spoke to TA, you know, in one of these kind of, in one of these calls, probably 12 months prior to them coming to the table. And from that call, they, they'd obviously done a huge amount of background work. So they came in a very informed way. So that, that one, that was pleasing. And two, I think the comfort that we could get from their investments and very, very successful investments it, with the likes of Soderberg in the Nordics, they've invested. Uh, so they had a fantastic return on that business and then reinvested recently again and with, with businesses like Wealth Advisory Group in the States. This wasn't new to them. And, you know, you ask all the difficult questions as much as you can and the limited amount of time that you have to, to meet up in person. But it, it just felt right. And, you know, so far, so good. And whilst maybe a naive question on my part, is there an element of that? It, it sort of feels right. The, the gut feel does also come into it in terms of, of how those relationships and conversations have gone. 100%, 100%. You know, some of it's an art and not science. It's it's very much similar to when we're, we're looking at, we're looking at which firms you want to partner with in the buyer mm -hmm. programme. You know, it's not just about the financials. It's not just about the regulatory record. It's that it's about can we work with these people? Do we feel comfortable? Do they, do they share the same values? Do we think there's going to be a good cultural fit? Whether it's PE or acquisitions or hiring of people, it's the same stuff because, you know, it is a partnership and you're going to go through good times, bad times, highs, lows, great market conditions, poor market conditions like we're in at the moment. And it's the, the strength of the relationship and the, the depth of understanding of what you're doing. That's key. There's loads of money out there. I mean, there's just mountains of money out there, but it doesn't all come in the same form. So it, it's it's picking the right partner. That's the key point. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so given that you have acquired so many businesses into the into the first own platform, where is the challenge in maintaining organic growth as well? Um, and does the does the increased scale obviously it does bring benefits. So what are the benefits then to the increased scale? So how, so how do you manage and, and how do you keep the organic growth on? And then how does uh, how does scale bring you advantages? Yeah. So, I mean, organic growth really is the acid test. You know, that's the acid test of a, of a, a really good growing business because you can continue to buy, but what you want is a business that can grow under its own steam. And thankfully, if you look at, if you look at our KPIs, we have organic client growth of anywhere between eight and nine percent, pretty much consistently each year, and that's probably a function of three things. One, we are very, very good at customer acquisition, so we have a search engine-based customer acquisition model, which you know leans on a lot of what I did in you know in my previous business, um, and it works fantastically well. You know, we create fantastic client opportunity with clients who have average investable assets of around half a million pounds at a cost per acquisition point of sub 500 pounds. And that that is, it's a mainstay of our business. It's something that we don't shout from the rooftops about, but it, it really is a fantastic tool to be able to provide to firms to say, okay, do you want to increase your client base? Do you want to segment your client base and look at a different way of servicing those clients with less sophisticated, simpler needs? Um, so that's one aspect to it. The second aspect is the whole capacity thing. Yeah. And we rarely find a firm that will say, I have too few clients. 
we very often find a firm that says I'm struggling to I'm struggling to service all of my clients. Yeah. And that's where that's centralized okay. yeah, and that's where all of the centralization stuff comes into play. So centralized power planning, centralized annual reviews, which you know clearly um, is very time consuming because annual reviews are very different now than they were a few years ago. It's it's a full blown suitability process to make sure that you know client risk profile, client portfolio, all of that stuff is still in the right space for the client. So how much of that can we take away from firms? But also, can we provide a better lower cost advisory channel to those clients who may not need full blown wealth management services? So we launched our mineral proposition this year, and that's all about delivering very simple remote advice to clients that do need a full advisory solution, but don't need the full fat, full service wealth management offering. Um, so typically aimed at clients with simpler needs, probably smaller portfolios or clients who are early stage accumulators. So they're building wealth rather than, than preserving or, or growing wealth. And to offer that to firms as a way to kind of incubate certain client types, uh, it, is a real tool in, in in creating that additional capacity which when which we can then infill with new customer opportunity and then the last aspect is just releasing firms from you know probably 30 to 40 percent of their time that they would historically have have applied to risk reg compliance cpd training all of the stuff where we can leverage our scale uh, in, in those areas, you know, we've got shape in, yeah. yeah, we've got teams of people that can take care of that, and it's those three things kind of hanging together: new customers, capacity, and taking away the stuff that we're really good at, but small firms might not be so good at. Yeah, well, it's it's just too much of a headache or pain in the proverbial. And actually, you can provide the solution as well as the upside. COVID. I'm always interested to see how people um, responded to COVID. Um, people being CEOs, owners of businesses, etc. Um, knowing how you engage with your customer base, I'm assuming that would have been a hell of a challenge um, to begin with. What did, what, what, what was the impact of COVID? How did you change both operationally and management-wise? And have you, you know, how have you come out the other side thinking have you got a new business here, or are you now going back to some of the the the, the tried and tested ways previously? Looking back at it. Um, I mean, none of us would ever choose to go through that period again. No. But I, I'm astonished at how well we performed. And at the start of COVID, we we did a reforecast because you know the market tanked, and you know we had to then reforecast four times across the year because we beat each forecast that we put in place. And the things that we did, we didn't do many things, but the things that we did, I thought, you know, we executed well. So number one. You know, everybody within the business, you know, barring maybe a, a handful of uh, colleagues, they were already set up to work from home if needed. So other than, you know, an emergency purchase of, you know, 20 odd laptops, everybody already had full setup, uh, you know, uh, full firewall access, could access so you were all quite agile anyway. Sorry? So you were quite agile anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that flip to that flip to remote working took us a couple of days. Um, so that wasn't something that was a huge burden. We did have to put in some new tech 
so we very quickly put together what we call our zero touch tech platform so that replicates many aspects of the face-to-face -face, uh, application you, you know so uh, as we're speaking today through teams but with adobe sign and with some kind of more dynamic illustration stuff and screen to screen document sharing and all that kind of thing so we were able to replicate you know our service offering through tech and again surprisingly that landed unbelievably well and we still use it today so a lot of our clients have become more more comfortable being serviced you know at annual review or at various different touch points does that make it harder tech. to convert clients or does that make it easy for competitors to penetrate or is that not really relevant so we don't really use it to win new clients because i think it's it's a step too far if you you know if you're talking about significant sums of money to to win a new client and gain the trust of that client and all the things that you need to just through a screen but for for managing managing existing clients in a much more effective um way it's a great tool but that landed really well and then the last aspect was just comms you we we went from doing monthly investment updates to weekly investment updates for our clients just to show that we're on top of things just to show that you know we're aware of everything that's happening in the world we're mitigating risks wherever we can encouraging clients not to crystallize a loss because markets will come back yeah. um and that was key and also internally um we we spent a lot of time doing just fireside chats so six o'clock each night with different cohorts of our colleagues uh with a glass of wine a beer or a cup of tea in hand and the rule was we can talk about anything but we can't talk about work so we we did yellow card and red card if you talk about work once you got the the yellow card and if you if you talk about work twice you got the red card and we just did lots and lots of that stuff because you know it, it was scary you know people it, it feels like a lifetime ago but it wasn't it was only two years ago in the early days, it was scary and people didn't know what was happening. So just staying connected, engaging as much as we can. And it was tiring. You know, you, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Every day was just teams meeting after teams meeting after teams meeting. Yeah. And big part of the job was just being, you know, the positive voice in the room. And, you know, yeah. you become part CEO, part court jester because you just need to keep spirits up. But we got through it and we got through it in fantastic shape um never ever would i have thought that we would get through covid with the you know the level of financial performance that we did in the shape that we did and it did actually bring parts of the business a little bit closer together so strange and look people can always <clears throat> appreciate when i ask that question um you know we like to think that we talk to really successful businesses and that and that sort of stuff but you then secured the um, another private equity round Sort of during that period slightly yeah. after it so therefore the proofs in the pudding in terms of you know what 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 you are saying is you know there is evidence actually the business was was performing exceptionally well so you know it, you know i appreciate that it's not just you saying those things right, i'm going to delve into areas that are far more educational and intelligent than what i am in terms of macro and governmental but i do feel that they are important for a business like yours so as we speak today labor what we're heading towards the back end of november We've just come through, I mean, quite frankly, a crazy period um, politically. I don't know, three <laughs> prime ministers in as many months, that kind of, you know, that kind of thing where, you know, it's just bonkers, isn't it? And there'll be a period of, you know, in, in the future when they look back and say, what the hell was going on in the UK over that period? What does 
the the macro environmental changes and challenges and i'll also weave another question so you've got the political instability and then our current economic changes so the bank of england have recently raised interest rates how does that affect a financial services business business like fairstone on a day-to-day and how you pivot so you've got big changes from a prime minister perspective changes in interest rates inflation etc what are the impacts for you the impacts for us are probably a couple of things. One, um, clients just don't know which way to turn. You know, so uh, again, you know, pre- pretty similar to the whole COVID experience. A big part of our job just turns into one of reassurance and okay. trying to avoid, you know, trying to encourage clients to stick to the long-term plan, understand that markets go through upturns and downturns, you know, history tells us that the upturns are far longer and far more lucrative than the downturns, all this kind of stuff. But because there's been so much volatility, and if you look at the backdrop across the world at the moment, you know, you've got coming out of COVID, you know, so we have to we have to fund the cost of the Second World War effectively. You've got Brexit, you've got war in Ukraine, you've got, you know, energy bills going through the roof. Uh, you've still got pressure on uh, fuel prices as well and then rising interest rates and all this kind of stuff. There's very little solid ground for clients just to, you know, without any external guidance and advice to, okay, to know what no to steady do. Away, is there? Yeah, so it, the job of, you know, the job of a wealth advisor then becomes the flip side to the, you know, <laughs> to the bull market, which is it's, it's reassurance, it's sticking to the plan, it's looking to manage costs wherever you can for clients, looking to minimize volatility, look to bring in other assets, you know, interestingly, cash is coming back as an asset, which nobody's seen for the best part of 20 years. So it's the same set of skills, but just applied in a in a different way. But it's it's a strange one, as we said here. Yeah, I think in 50 years time, you know, school kids are going to be taught uh, about the last few years and the next few years as kind of the age of volatility or something like that, because there's just been so much but really, it is the time when financial advice really should come to the fore. And because, let's be honest, when when the market goes up, we all do fantastically well. Clients do fantastically well, but we don't have to work a lot harder for it. You know, let's be honest about that. Yeah. The time where we really earn our corn yeah. is where we do go through periods of instability and volatility. And there's no point complaining about that. It just is what it is. And, you know, all we're looking for as a business, and if you ask anybody else in, in my position, we're just looking for a bit of stability. Um, Please. It, yeah, and <laughs> actually from government, I, I think it's less it's less about which way you lean politically. And it's more just now, please give me competent government. That will yeah, make sensible yeah. decisions yeah. Yeah. because that's what we've lacked. We've lacked that entirely. Now, I'm a little bit optimistic about what 2023 will look like. A little bit optimistic. I think um, markets have steadied a bit. Um, interest rate swaps are coming down. Um, there are certain indicators that inflation might be getting under control. But all we're really looking for is stability because people can plan 
when there is stability. There comes a point when uh, in any down market, it becomes a buying opportunity as well. But, you know, the worst thing that we can try and do is time the market. You know, we need various economic indicators to be going from flashing red to at least flashing amber before we can say with conviction, you know, now's the time to be in the market and now's the time to do braver things. But, I, you know, I'm an optimist by nature and I do, I'm cautiously optimistic about what next year will be. I think at the very least, it will be more stable than the last year has been. You do know this isn't a private conversation, Libby. I'll record this <laughs> podcast and this will be released. And maybe at the back I will be putting out the really disclaimer good. that yeah, you know, yeah. none of this is financial advice and does yeah. not represent the views of First Home Financial Management. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so with that in mind, anything revisiting your M&A strategy, does that bring further opportunity for you? It does. And, you know, the benefit of what we do and how we do it is, you know, we can look through um, periodic blips in trading performance because we've been working in partnership with, uh, with our partner firms for two, three or four years. So we've got complete mm. transparency over their underlying performance. And that means we can continue to buy exactly as we had planned um, because we know what that business is capable of. We know what the, the fundamentals of that business are, how many clients they have, you know, what funds under management they have in normal market conditions. So if that was somebody that we just met for the first time, you'd probably start having the conversation around valuation, performance, and, you know, trying to mitigate some of that stuff. We don't have to have those conversations because we know how these businesses perform. And that is a that is a huge advantage. By the same token, we also offer uh, our partner firms some real, you know, tangible uh, flex points in the deal structure. So if they decided that now's not the right time to sell because the market has hit their performance and they think that might, you know, extend for a year or so they can push the acquisition point out completely yeah. at their discretion. And also if during the earnout, if the market's tanked and their performance took a took a hit, they can actually pause the earnout, move it to the right and say, listen, I don't want to effectively like say to, to clients, don't crystallize a loss and a downturn. The same thing with our acquisitions. Move the earnout to the right. Um, don't crystallize you know a, a smaller earnout payment because we want every single one of the firms that we acquire to get the maximum value from their business. And by doing that, the hope is that those shareholders will stay with us for the long term, continue to grow, continue to be incentivized, and really be part of the culture that we're trying to build. So you've bootstrapped the business, you've done two private equity events, um, 60 odd, 64, I think you said, um, M&A transactions. An exit. What does that bear in mind in your future gazing mode? What what does what does an exit look like for first time? Firstly, um, I think we're lucky enough to have backers that really do not think short term. Now, every, every single private equity firm on earth will say, you know, we are longer term holders and all this kind of stuff. But we've been consistent with that. You've said that yeah. piece to me. Yeah. But for us, I, I don't think we're going to be looking at. Uh, another liquidity event for another five, six, maybe even seven years. Uh, for our shareholders, I think their appetite is 
to really see the business reach its full potential. And there's a there's a range of things that we're doing now around strategy that are going to take a while to to roll out. They're going to take a while to, to create value, and we want to see those things, you know, in full flow before we we look at another transaction. So, from a timing point, yeah, I think it's five, six, or seven years from here. We are, I think, because of the nature of the business, it is we're very well suited to private equity. My best guess is that we'll go through another private equity transaction. Um, but you can never say never. A listing, um, as as you know, entirely dependent upon the weather, uh, entirely dependent upon the market conditions and making sure that uh, if you are looking at a listing, you probably, you know, you'd want to run a, a dual process anyway, but it's not, it's not beyond our thinking and also because of the nature of our business. There aren't many organisations that can quite accurately predict what their P&L contribution will be from M&A in two years and three years and four years time. Where we can. So, um, you know, there are aspects that could be attractive to the public markets, but I just think because of the entrepreneurial, high growth, fast paced nature of what we do, that I think remaining a private business is probably the most likely outcome for us. Whilst I've got you and I've got you on future gazing mode again, uh, before we start winding up the pod, um, back end of November 2022, we've done one World Cup match so far. So England beat um, Iran 6-2 on Monday. Um, I know you're, you're proud, Geordie. We're not going to get into Newcastle United, certainly not going to get into Everton, my team. Where do you think England will get on in the World Cup? I think we'll do pretty well. Um, well. You are confident. You said before, okay, right. I am confident. Is it coming I home, think, Lee? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? It could. It could. I think go. we've got a young squad, loads of energy, massive creative talent. I think we're going to do pretty well. I think we're going to at least get through to the semi-finals. Wow. Okay. That's uh, yeah. We'll look, and you've got a couple of. Couple of Newcastle players in there, haven't you? My old next door neighbours in there. You got the right back. So he's, he's yeah, okay. Yeah. Semi finals are punchy. I think that's um, that's ambitious. I think uh, I think they might struggle actually, but I can't get too carried away for six two win. But let's see. Um, right, last couple of questions then, Lee. And very conscious that you've got a busy day ahead of you. So um, I like these questions as well because I think they bring out a bit more of a personal um, insight into those people that we sit down with. Any walk of life now, so don't, don't worry about trying to be really clever or, you know, um, educational base, whatever it may well be. Who is your icon? Ooh. Mm. That's a tough one. Could be uh, anything, could be football, business, do you music, know what? anything. I'm, I'm going to avoid the temptation that a lot of people uh, take when asked this kind of question, you come, for, you know, you come up with some really cerebral answer. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with Dave Grohl, ex-drummer of Nirvana, lead singer of the Foo Fighters. I think he is the saviour of rock and roll. Have you read his book? I've read his book. I've seen them six or seven times um, before they cancelled their tour for very obvious reasons this year, with the, the death of their drummer. Uh, the plan was to go and see them on every single date in the UK. Um, really? But, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Um, 
you know, I'll go anywhere for a band with two guitars, a bass, and a set of drums. Okay, so you've obviously got that from your um, your father's um, one of his businesses running the rock and roll, <laughs> um, whichever band that was. I think if you grew your hair out a little bit, there's a bit of Dave Grohl in you, actually. Well, you know, I am a bedroom rock star. You know, it's well, never, okay, been, on, it's it never been on stage, <laughs> but the talent is there. <laughs> Dave Grohl, I like that. Uh, not not on my not on my sort of top list of foods, but I'll give you know I can I can I can definitely listen to them. My kind of genre though. Um, probably a bit more of a cerebral answer then for the next question. Um, if you could go back in time and go to uh, I can't remember what age I, I did ask just a so sorry sorry about twenty two year old Lee Hartley who set up his businesses and maybe didn't quite know what the the future path was going to look like and had different concerns at a different point in time. What would you say to your younger self now, knowing what you know, sort of where you are today in 2022? Hmm. A couple of things, I think. So there's, there's a phrase I use, actually, and it's a phrase that I stole from one of our very early stage investors that I just, I really try and live my life by, which is, you know, I've spent my life dealing with bad news at different forms and at different times, but what I hate are surprises. And just trying to make sure that people, if something is going wrong in the business, making sure that they always come to the table early, because if you come to the table early, it's our problem. If you come to the table late, it's your problem. But just really trying to get that principle established very 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 early into the business you know that's one thing and it's all about people and it's all about the quality of the people that you surround yourself with the quality of the people that you hire whether they share the same cultural values you know the mistakes that I've made in hiring have always been when I've been seduced by the CV seduced by the glitz and glamour of past experience and forgot about the person and it really is it's just all about people it's about it's about building a team having a team that want to work together will go the extra mile um strategy is great and you've got to have strategy you've got to have differentiation you've got to have a plan that you stick to and work at and prove and refine but the precursor to all of that is it's just all about people so spend as much time as you can finding really great people that you want to work with and spend as much time with them as possible make sure that they really understand what you what you're trying to achieve and things tend to just work out if you do that great you've been very kind enough to invite me to your conferences in the past i know you are a very elegant public speaker but genuinely i i love listening to you talk i think and that and i never leave a session with you without a smile on my face and <laughs> I've really enjoyed that time we've just spent together and hopefully people listening to that will learn a little bit about Fairstone, but actually learn a lot about how to how to just make the right decisions and actually trusting your gut and believing in people and just being honest, really. Thanks. And you got the benefit of my uh, weekend accent rather than my affected Monday to Friday accent as well. I thought <laughs> I'd, I'd give, give you the full experience. <laughs> Good man. Lee, thank you. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. 
Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.